Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, joined by Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? Uh, excellent. Uh, finished the last day of the semester here at VCU, and I am officially on Christmas vacation, and uh, it's awesome. Lucky man. And uh, Ty Rubin, how are you, Ty? Doing well. Enjoying the fall. The fall being your autumn, right? Indeed. Yeah. Okay. Temperatures below what scorching ninety nine, you know. It's <laughs> I think we had a we had a, a freeze of sorts. It got below uh freezing for maybe twenty minutes this last week. <gasps> oh my so God. So this week uh, on the show, we're going to talk about two films, uh, two new films, actually. Um, one of which uh, I have in front of me is part of an enormous amount of large glossy material sent to me by the Academy, <laughs> is claimed to be a cinematic achievement of the year, and that would be a Tree of Life. And the other uh, is Melancholia. Now, I'd like to get a disclaimer out in front before we start the show, which is, and I want to, no, no, actually, it's a very serious disclaimer. I actually... Um, want to fully acknowledge that the director of uh, Melancholia uh, is an ass and uh, made some really inappropriate <laughs> comments at uh, Khan, which got him banned for life. And absolutely, uh, we don't in any way seek to um, walk away from the fact that those pro-Nazi uh, comments are extraordinarily offensive to many uh, people and many of you listening. And by no means reviewing the film is meant to be some kind of endorsement of any kind of political view that he or may or may not have. Personally, I think he's just an ass and was actually just trying to create a bit of controversy and, and carry on. But uh, some things aren't good humour. And uh, certainly, uh, personally, and also for my Jewish friends, I find that like an offensive thing to be joking about. So we are going to discuss the film. Um, I also, you know, personally have an issue with the director because he decides to make pornography in his spare time. Um, but that's probably a more of a personal view than me. So we, we obviously... I just think just get it right out there and say that I don't I don't appreciate people making those kind of jokes, but we do want to review the film because we think it's a significant film. And uh, I personally was a bit of a quandary, you know, do you walk away from every director who you think's an ass? And the answer is probably no. But um, there, having said that, um, let's swing to our discussion of the films. And I'm going to start, if I can, Matt, with you and, uh, and ask you whether or not you agree that I should, in fact... Uh, be one of those people supporting, as I think Roger Ebert is, uh, Tree of Life as being one of the only films uh, kind of uh, worthy of being considered for Best Picture this year? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I do think it's an interesting, you know, not to be like an awards pundit, I guess, but although we do that a little bit on the show, which I, I think is appropriate. Um, but, I, but I do think you're right. I mean, I think when you look at um, all of the films that have been released this year that would kind of be this sort of things that you might imagine would be the sort of best picture fair. It's pretty um, slim pickings. I don't know that there have been um, a large number of films. I know last year they went for their first year of nominating, uh, what was it, 10 films for best picture in an attempt to sort of, you know, draw in a larger viewership so that people felt like they had a, you know, a horse uh, in the race, as it were, um, you know, and whatever, you know, awards, awards. But I mean, you know, the Academy Award certainly does bring with it a lot of, um, you know, additional box office and, you know, other sort of uh, career accolades and whatnot. But I do think, yeah, looking at um, Tree of Life, I mean, you know, I've for years I've been a huge fan of the uh, very few uh, films of Terrence Malick. I think, you know, any real cinephile um, I think could watch uh, any of his films and really walk away with, uh, you know, kind of a, a unique experience. And Tree of Life certainly is no different. I think, in fact, it might even be one of the more unique films that he's made in that it really takes a departure from 
uh, you know, his earlier films in that it, it really has almost um, no traditional narrative to speak of. And, and, but it's incredibly beautifully uh, photographed with almost all, you know, sort of available light, which I think is sort of a staple of his style of shooting. And, and interestingly enough in this film too, he, he incorporates the use of visual effects pretty heavily in sort of a, you know, interesting sequence that I'm sure we'll talk about. But yeah, no, I think, um, you know, when I got that same thing from uh, the the studio, that big packet that had all those glossy photographs in it, um, and it's pretty neat looking at that, uh, and I sort of felt like, okay, yeah, they really want me to think about this movie this year. But um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was um, uh, a really unique experience in the cinema. Um, it's the kind of film that you don't see every day. Um, and you know, I think I have a few issues that I could take with the movie, but overall, uh, it's unlike anything else I saw, you know, this year for sure, um, at the movies and for that alone, I think, um, you know, and it was quite beautiful. I think it was a quite a, quite a beautiful, um, narrative, a beautiful story. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, for that alone, I think it deserves at least consideration in that uh, category, for sure. Ty, what about you? Well, I think Matt's hit uh, hit most of the points that I would make. Uh, I thought it was an exceptional film. Um, and in many ways, it was the kind of film that I have a certain file cabinet in my brain, especially, uh, you know, put to the side for uh, challenging pictures that uh, really, really provide... Uh, you know, uh, a lot of um, food for thought and, and stimulate my imagination in a certain kind of way and, and are challenging to the audiences. Uh, I think so often, um, you know, the entertainment piece of cinema, the vaudevillian piece, uh, has been, you know, running and, and leaping always towards the front of the uh, the whole spectrum of cinema and the whole spectrum of filmmaking. But where, if you look back historically, there's always been, um, important films, uh, you know, of course we could have to go with 2001, but you could also look at a movie like The Graduate or uh, a movie that like Midnight Cowboy or Last Tango in Paris. There's this whole series of films primarily from the 70s that, uh, that really challenged uh, the audiences to come up with their own ideas and to invest their own narrative, their own personal story, their own personal perspectives into the mix. And um, uh, I think that that's something that whenever it comes along and it's done well um i'm i'm a big i'm a champion of and in this case i just i thought it was a gem it was just visually a treat and and again just rang a lot of um bells with me that that i was you know interested in in thinking about at my age and uh you know being a a a male a boy who you know grew up as a man in in america and in a little bit later time frame but definitely with the same kinds of universal trends and themes and uh, i was glad to see it explored and um, i i think it's an extraordinary picture so i didn't like it at all um and hmm. i'm gonna be really careful and in because i don't want to get into a kind of a uh weird thing where i'm just being negative but i didn't like it in the way that i don't like jazz but i like blues and i don't mean dixieland i mean like freeform jazz fusion um it's to me uh, a film without a narrative structure that uh, that is interesting, it is unique, and it is beautifully shot, uh, but I'm not willing to give it to form over content. I, I like a film to have more of an arc, more of a character development, and more ability for me to engage with it, not be confused by it. 
And I will say I'm not alone in this because at Cannes, where it did go extraordinarily well, it was also received with uh, boos as much as applause when it was first screened. Yeah. Um, so I don't think mm-hmm. I'm unique in this uh, point of view. I don't think it's a bad film. I don't want to live in a world where no one makes these films, that they don't exist. Mm. I just choose to not spend my time watching them mainly. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's fair too. And I, I mean, I think it's... And that's, I think, one of the things that's kind of interesting about a movie like this is that, you know, it can be um, the kind of thing that I think, uh, you know, it's it's not a film for everyone. It's certainly, I mean, my son certainly would hate to watch it, you know. And, and I know people who saw it whose opinion I really respect, including yours, Mike, who didn't um, really enjoy it in the same way. And I think it's a different kind of film and a different kind of narrative that, you know, maybe doesn't really speak to everyone. It has kind of a kind of a metaphysical quality about it um, that makes it sort of, it, it is a non-linear, non-traditional narrative structure um, that it doesn't have a specific set plot per se, but I do think it functions in a similar fashion to what you were saying before too, Ty, like it's much like a film like 2001 in a way in that I think 2001, well, it has a more maybe A to B to C to D style plot, um, it takes on a veneer uh, of a similar kind of metaphysical set of questions about the sort of essence and nature of, you know, humanity and of the the experience of, you know, a life and sort of what that means and how we negotiate and navigate that space. Like, I think... um, you know, not to be kind of too cheeseball, but I think one of the most poignant move- moments in the film happens at the very end of the film where um, it's sort of a cutaway shot and it's of a mask falling uh, through water. And I think, you know, that's kind of part of the narrative of the whole film too is this kind of, um, and it's again, it's kind of metaphysical, it sounds kind of hippy-dippy saying it this way, but I think it kind of comes across as being this film about... Um, self-awareness and about like a sense of self-identity and how do you define what that is uh, for yourself, you know, and how do you come to terms with that and, and the whole sort of experience that where you see everybody in this kind of it felt a little new agey, I will confess. It was one of the things I didn't really like in terms of the staging, but the sequence at the end of the film where um, presumably the, the main character who is now played by Sean Penn as the boy in his sort of older age, you get the feeling, I guess, that he has died, right? And that he's sort of walking, like, it looks like they're in Bonneville or something, right, on the salt flats. And they're walking around and he sees, like, you know, his father and his mother when they were younger and they see him as an adult and I don't know. I mean, I think that kind of stuff is sort of interesting on an emotional level to think about exploring if you feel that it's something that you can, um, you know, if it works for you in terms of the form and in terms of like, you know, empathizing with that or if it makes a connection. And I think it clearly is a very personal film for the filmmaker, right? I mean, it does feel very much like, you know, this is his story, really. In a, yeah, in but let, a me, let me use thing. another musical analogy and uh, hmm. popular culture. I'm, I'm a big fan of the jam, English band they occasionally put out instrumentals like circus i love that song but i don't want an entire album of instrumentals i like a town like malice i like the songs where they sing and to use the analogy i like it when a film addresses some of these metaphysical things i like it when they have really interesting montages and sequences but i don't want the whole film to be that now there are a couple of exceptions i'm i really enjoyed uh, when it first came out i remember particularly Kiana Skarsky, which was obviously a lot of time-lapse uh-huh. and non-narrative structured stuff. But on the whole, I like 
to have, to, to go back to my analogy, the song with some lyrics and some purpose and not just instrumentals. Now, there are a whole other class of people that just totally love just straight uh, classical music or music that has no uh, voice and is just instrumental and they like to get lost in that. And I, I respect them for doing that. I don't have any problem with them doing that. I just personally don't want to buy that album. And sure. I found this to be to be so far into form over content that it became, in my opinion, yes, personal, but I'm going to say self-indulgent. Um, and, hmm. I, I, and I'll tell you one specific example. To now, and let's say you guys, Ty, you might be able to solve this for me. You're a, you're a bright guy. Who the heck died in the swimming pool? Was that one of their kids? How many kids did they have? I don't even know anyone that's seen the film that can answer that basic question. No, that was just uh, one of the neighbor kids. I mean, so you how know, many kids it, were there in the family? Uh, I think they had three kids or four. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that the details in a film like this are that. Ah, okay, I understand much of the, a relevant issue. I mean, no, I understand. I understand. That you can argue I understand that, but don't uh-huh. you? But it, but it bugged me that I couldn't work out what was going on. They took I thought me they out had of the three film. kids, and that that kid that died was one of their children. That's what I. That's how I saw no it. No one knows that. And, and my point was, I'm watching the film, and I start getting tangled up in, what am I looking at? I don't understand mm. this. Now, now Ty, sorry to interrupt you. I'll let you go on. But that's my point. It wasn't that, that I didn't know that, that it wasn't that I, oh, my God, how could I watch this film and not know how many kids they had? It was more like things kept on coming <laughs> up like that, that I was going, I'm kind of lost here. I don't know what I'm looking at. I'm trying to piece this together. Could somebody switch the lights on for a second so I could draw a map? I mean, I, I suspect that my suspicion would be is that um, you could do that. I mean, if if you sat down with the with the script or if you sat down with the, uh, the you know the film and you took a notebook, I, I, I suspect that the structure is is there in some form that you could plot it out and make a map. Uh, but the map would contain vague lines. It wouldn't be a refined, high-resolution map. It would be a generalized map. And that's what I think the beauty of the picture is, is that it's negotiating large themes uh, that, uh, in my mind, are fairly straightforward to um, at, least, at least catch hold of. Um, you know, the, uh, the idea of the process of aging from innocent child to uh, uh, going through adolescence where you're, you know, kind of, you know, going to be um, acting out and establishing an identity separate from your parents. You know, the, the sequence where he breaks the window or he's with a group of kids that breaks a window. That's a very common uh, adolescent moment where you're defining yourself and you're defying rules and you're breaking things or experimenting and doing these things. And I guess maybe a lot of these things, I'm always curious, and I, I totally respect your position on this, is that oftentimes when you mention the musical metaphors and stuff, a lot of it has to do with what you were brought up on. A lot of what we, we like in our life are the things that we're accustomed to. If you're raised in a, a household that played a lot of jazz or classical music, chances are as you got older, you'd like it a little bit more than a guy who never heard it. Same with uh, ethnic, you know, ethnic uh, um, kinds of music or music from other cultures. It's very difficult at some point to you know, really get into the sitar, for example, if you weren't around it a lot. You know, it becomes a novelty kind of a thing. And um, I guess for me, growing up in the Midwest and 
and uh, growing up with, I, I, I think I might have hit the cinema when I was, you know, old enough to go to the movies by myself. And Robert Altman was directing, and these, you know, movies that were very kind of softly plotted. You know, Mash, uh, Three Women, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, you've, you've got Antonio. You've got Fellini. You've got uh, even uh, even um, Roman Polanski with like The Tenant uh, was using these kind of movies that were not strong in structure, but they were accurate in theme. And the themes, to me, in the film really struck a chord, and they were resonating uh, in my psyche and, and kind of asked me to ask questions that were along the lines of things that I am actually pondering at this station in my life. Um, and I suspect that's why you know I found uh, a, a lot of value in it. That isn't to say that that my interpretive skills are any more uh, refined. It's just maybe the the types of films that I enjoy, the types of films I've seen in the course of my life, and kind of where I'm at with my background and my past. So I, I think that, that's louder. a very good point. Well, okay, so let me get to this point then. It felt to me like I was watching a lot of scenes that were linked emotionally, not physically or logically. And, exactly. And if that is the case, then with that uh, sort of framework, how do we go to judge what is quite exceptional in, in, uh, in isolation, I guess exceptional in the film as well, which is this sort of montage effects sequence. Well, it's not even a montage. It's, a, it's a, an evolutionary effect sequence, which is quite incongruous to almost the rest of the film. And yet emotionally, <laughs> I would say actually is on the same beats. Even for someone like me that didn't enjoy the film, it didn't feel like it, it suddenly was a different film. Remarkably, it felt like it was in keeping with the rest of the film, although the subject matter was now dinosaurs and, and, uh, and incredibly... Did you guys feel that it sat in the film or did you feel that it mm, popped out? You know, it's funny that you asked that. I mean, I, I, I do think that overall the sequence in this... It, and it sort of was a recurring sort of thematic device that was utilized visually throughout the film um, where they would use kind of this burning, kind of glowing um, light source that would sort of have all this kind of nice refraction and halation and kind of, um, you know, this glow and it would sort of tumble around and then it would sort of spawn to reveal these various scenarios, whether they were underwater or, you know, in deep space and, you know, things that looked like, you know, shots from the Hubble Space Telescope. And, and then there were sequences, uh, a few brief sequences with some, um, <laughs> with some dinosaurs, um, of, of which some specifically it would be fun to discuss. And also the, a couple shots in what I would call the primordial ooze as well. Um, and, you know, I watched it, my wife and I watched it together, and we both kind of looked at each other when this stuff came on, and we kind of chuckled a little bit, because it really, it did kind of stick out. I don't know that the movement into those scenes and the transition editorially, as well as maybe just, you know, we've seen too many movies like that, you know, you immediately, when you see a dinosaur, you you kind of can't help but think of... Um, for better or worse, I guess you, I felt like I can't help but think of Jurassic Park. You know, I mean, it instantly comes to mind, and because it's such a seminal visual effects moment, um, you know, the the release of the first Jurassic Park film for sure. Um, and I think that this was something that w that it sort of you can't come to this without that baggage. I think it was hard for me anyway, um, and I think some of it worked well, and some of it maybe worked. Not quite as well. I thought the space stuff and the, you know, there's a great shot of an asteroid or a meteor or something hitting the planet. That's that's really a beautiful, beautiful shot. Really well done. Um, but I don't know that the dinosaur work 
um, emotionally, I think it struck the same beat. I think you're right. But whether or not it worked in the context of the larger movie, uh, I would say I could have watched the movie without that sequence and probably gotten the same. Um, I don't think I would have missed. I don't think I would have missed it, I guess. Time? Well, I think um, I think Mike, you're, I'll, I'll take your position on this. I mean, it felt very congruent uh, to me, and I, I, I actually to uh, I actually don't think the movie would be the same experience without it. Uh, I thought they were very tied together, and I'll and maybe again, I mean, I have to come right out and say I'll, some of this stuff has to do with your own age and your own life experience. I mean, when whenever you're going to talk, and this movie is very metaphysical, it, it does talk in many in some language about God or spirituality or mysticism, however you want to frame it. But that's what the movie's, one of its primary themes is, is about notions of mortality, notions of place in the universe. That What I think was really beautiful about it for me, and I think why it was powerful, was uh, you get to both center your, your, uh, your, you get to center your experience on these characters that are going through these kind of universal life changes, and then they speak about God, or they speak in terms about, you know, I, you know, you should do these things because they're right, and there's this whole notion of right and wrong, and and all these different things about being human, biological, and then the scale shifts, and you see, like she says right before the sequence where you go into space, like, you know. I asked God to do this, or I prayed to God. And then you look, and he's clearly busy creating gigantic fireballs and, you know, making planets and stuff. And the disconnect in my mind is so awesomely interesting because it's basically saying not only is this story about these people and this family insignificant, it's so insignificant that you almost can't even perceive how insignificant it is. And then at the same time, what, is it, what does it do if you flip it and you go back down to the story and you follow this family and these different people and these characters? Is it starts to speak about each person is kind of the extension of reality. They're as far as they're going to get in yeah. this life is what you personally love. You know, you know these things because you're the crown of the biological tree. You know, from the first Big Bang through chemistry, all the way through primitive animals, through culture. Who's the crown? Who's made it this far? You know, the guys in the theater watching the movie and the guys on the screen that are being presented as real characters. I mean, that's, that's the most important stuff the universe has created in, in the terms of the storyline. It, it, it kind of eclipses all the, the majesty of the space because you get thinking beings at the other end. And I like those juxtapositions and that play. And to me, I, that's where my mind went was that kind of hmm. how can we be so self-absorbed that we obsess about our jobs? You know, there's a great line where um, Brad Pitt says, son, you see this? You know, this is all you get. You know, like a car and a house. That's it. But on the other hand, the mother's talking about nurturing and, and carrying life forward and moving on the next generation. And that's all against the backdrop of this hostile universe that's that's was presented. Again, I'm a little bit of a sucker, I'll be honest, for this kind of space opera when it's not necessarily filled with TIE fighters and X-Wings. I mean, I like when that in, grandeur. When in doubt, put on the classical make music. A, and but I think, you, yeah, I think you, make a, you make a great case for all of it. I mean, I think it, that's a really tight... Um, uh, description and connection of all of those, what seemingly felt like, at least for me at moments, sort of disparate pieces. Like, um, I think that you make a really powerful case for uh, 
you know, why those things work in that context. And I, I could totally see where you're coming from. I do think at some level, uh, and we'll switch gears in two seconds to just the effects per se, but I do think at one level it really comes down to are you the sort of person that when you watch a five-minute montage of really cool time-lapse after a minute and a half goes, that's really cool time-lapse, and you scrub down the timeline as if there's anything exceptionally cooler? Or are you the person that just is happy to sit there for five minutes watching time-lapse, which, let's face it, most time-lapse is non-narrative, you know, really beautiful-looking stuff with stars flying and trees flapping and and flowers opening. Um, and I think that just there are two categories of people. Some people really like that beautiful shot, and other people like me get a bit impatient after a minute and a half and scrub the timeline. Um, the thing is, though, that whether you scrub the timeline or not, there's no doubt in my mind that the actual visual effects involved in that sequence was really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, well, Matt, do you want to just talk to us, for those that don't know us, like who was involved in it and where it came from? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, uh, you know, the bulk of this work was done... Uh, well, it was kind of spread out, right? I mean, Doug Trumbull was involved in some of the development of some of the um, traditional shots. And then Dan Glass was the overall visual effects supervisor. And, you know, they divided the work into three primary realms, right, in the visual effects, the first being the astrophysical realm, which dealt primarily with the early cosmos and the evolution of the universe, stars, galaxies, and planets, and all that stuff. And that was principally handled by um, Double Negative, right, with um, Paul Riddle, was the supervisor. And then the microbial was the second of the three realms, which had the molecular and cellular origination of life, um, which I thought actually was really interesting. There were some great shots of the kind of primordial ooze that I was talking about. And it reminded me a lot of some of the shots from, I don't know if you guys have seen this work, but it kind of went around the net for a while as kind of a cool, interesting um, 3D animation. It was this Harvard biomedical animation called The Life of a Cell. I don't know if you guys ever saw it. Yeah, I that. saw it. It was but, awesome. Really, really amazing stuff. Um, But that work was um, primarily done by uh, the London boutique uh, called One of Us. And some of the supplemental stuff was done by Method, where they did the splitting of the DNA strands to form more complex organisms. And that was supervised by Olivier uh, Dumont. And then um, it says that the father and son team of Peter and Chris Parks um, shot a bunch of interesting flows of colors. And then the last section of the film of the three realms was referred to as the natural history sequence um, uh, in the or realm, uh, which focused mostly on the dinosaurs. And those were created by Prime Focus and Frantic. And those were supervised um, respectively by Mike Fink and Brian uh, Hirota. So yeah, just like to give those guys Mike props. Yeah, Prime Focus, Evil Eye, Double Nag, um, CFC, uh, it looks like, yeah, was a number of facilities. And they did a whole host of really interesting work, um, some traditional, uh, kind of more traditional style effects of working with um, pouring uh, paint and whatnot, like the kind of things that, you know, it reminds me of um, conversations uh, that I know, I think you guys had uh, with um, Scott Squires talking about stuff they were doing with the cloud tank and stuff mm. like that, working to get some of these kinds of um, practical effects that they could then shoot and uh, composite together um, in conjunction with a significant amount of digital work as well. Um, you know, I was sort of excited at the time. I just have to mention a really good uh, close friend of mine who, strangely enough, I grew up with. We were in high school art class together in Southern California. Um, her name is Nagin Berami. And um, 
she uh, was the senior texture painter on this job, and she was so excited when she heard the movie had come out, and she got a credit on this one because she thought it would be really cool to get a credit on a Terrence Malick film. But um, Terrence Malick is revered. Yeah. In many circles. I mean, I'm going to get hate mail for just saying I didn't like this film. I know that. Um, but but I also think Douglas Trumbull is revered and and uh, just as equally kind of uh, worthy of... Yeah, uh, it's funny because you just mentioned Scott Squires. And, and what's interesting is when I was at Industrial Light and Magic, um, one of the reasons I knew who Scott Squires was was because... He had, uh, you know, come up with the saline solution for the cloud tank they used in Close Encounters. And, that, uh, and when I was first there, I remember meeting Scott and being like, you know, I, I had this kind of, you know, long developed interest in visual effects. And I'd read about all these individuals and was finally getting to meet Dennis and these people. But actually, um, through Scott Squires, I met Doug Trumbull. He was... Uh, in town because uh, of uh, looking into something to do with the show scan uh, mm-hmm. uh, technology that he developed. And I was working on a show scan, um, uh, what they call a ride film, where you sit in these seats that move around and then the, you know, the images uh, imi- imitate reality and the two combined together. It's like Star Tours, many people are familiar with, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a presentation where you are trying to imitate reality and, and the experience of riding in a roller coaster or something like that. And um, I was just of the people I've met in my career, uh, you know, to know that he had been involved with 2001 and Kubrick and that touchstone picture for me, it was really exciting. And I was excited, uh, on top of excited, that when I read that Malik had tapped him to come and do these um, these pieces for uh, for this film. And I think that I don't know, in my own personal perspective on it is that I know they did some organic work and I know that they poured fluids like Matt was suggesting and did things in small dishes with, uh, you know, with uh, magnification cameras and and, uh, microscopes. But I think it was all touched digitally as Mm. well. And they used that collage of materials in a really effective way. Uh, I, I know that someday in the future everything will be be able to be synthesized but there's something so extraordinary about analog and what happens with just real materials and how they kind of wove that together and I, I'm, I suspect Doug's background and, and his sensibilities played into that very well and I think that's what gave the, the, an extra weight, uh, I guess a visual weight to the space stuff and and you know just the variety in such kind of gorgeous um, large format uh, presentation it was it was really it was really next level stuff in many regards when you consider how many times you've seen star fields and and nebulae you know it was well, what really I liked about it was I could imagine us sitting around here with this film not existing and saying, wouldn't you love to see what Douglas Trumbull would do today if he had the tools today to try and do that stuff with modern digital cameras, with very clean stuff, without the problem of having to do, you know, bypacks and, uh, you know, all the film opticals. Wouldn't Optical it be, compositing. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't it be great to see what Douglas Trumbull could do if he was let loose today to do this kind of stuff? Well, this is the answer to that, right? This is like, what, mm-hmm. it's almost like 20 minutes long. How long is it in the film? It's like really long. Maybe I'm just... Yeah. It, well, it's it's long, but I think with the sound, I thought the sound design was extraordinary as well. Now, I was really fortunate because I was in Toronto and I got to see this uh, at the Lightbox uh, Theater, which is where the Toronto Film Festival has their headquarters. It's just a brand new state-of-the-art um, presentation. And um, 
it 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 was like it was such high fidelity uh both image and sound that, that I found it like that I wanted that sequence to go on longer <laughs> sorry Mike. well I guess I mean it's I long because it was, it was so it's a really well long time to leave the, ne- the 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 live action portion of the film and go into an effect sequence I mean it's not uncharacteristic for Trumbull to be involved in films that did that but in the modern day to leave the main actors and go into a 22 whatever minute piece of visual effects even if it didn't feel long it's like mathematically box office wise a long time to not have any of your principal cast on screen um would you not agree yeah no i mean uh, to me i guess it just it gave me time to catch up uh on my thoughts about the you know the cosmos i mean i i i didn't I wasn't waiting to get back to their story, but when I did get back to the the story of the Brad Pitt family, as it were, um, I did come at it with a slightly adjusted perspective. At least that's how it affected me. Um, and I had more questions because of it. And again, this kind of thought-provoking material, uh, um, you know, it's something that I guess I'm kind of wired for in some regard, or at least, you know, I guess that's, that's part of it perhaps. But I, I just... You know, I didn't. I thought it was a challenging film from the get-go. I mean, whether or not yeah. uh, you know a studio is going to be interested in a movie of that nature is always a question. And the fact that once you get a chance to make it, aren't you going to try to put in as much of your own views? I understand there was a four-hour, four and a half-hour cut of the picture, <laughs> and then a three and a half-hour cut. And and people that have seen all the cuts said that actually what's left is really the best of what he had. So you know, can you keep? Could you cut it down to a ninety-minute version? I mean, you know. I don't know. I th- I thought it was sort of seamless in that regard. Can I say though, because uh, I'm going to ask you guys to follow me. I think that of those sequences, while many of them were very visually arresting, I couldn't get past just how beautiful and how good. And obviously, it's going to be a, a natural, um, sorry, a, a more narrative-looking piece. But there's a shot of the dinosaur on the beach. The beach, yeah, and where it's the, backlit with the sun setting. Yeah. It's like a and almost like or something. It's always like to give it the award of you know that's the shot that if I had it on my reel, I'd be super happy with because that yeah. shot was. I just thought, like I saw that shot and I went, oh my god, they should remake Jurassic Park because we could do it even better now. Um, it was. It was the skin really texture, gorgeous. The reflections because oh. it was a wet surface yep. uh, with the reflection of that sunset coming off and the curvature of the head and then the, the wet kind of flippers like brushing against the sand. And yeah, it was a fantastic shot. I actually put that down as I think my favorite shot of the um, effects work in this film. The other one uh, sequence that I thought was kind of interesting and which I, I actually had a few kind of minor quibbles with, at least in the um, re-watching it again on the, the screener, which maybe isn't fair. But um, the, there's a shot of uh, the smaller dinosaurs, um, and there's one shot in particular on the sort of side of a stream yep. bed uh, where a dinosaur walks up to one who uh, appears to be dying, right, beside yep. the side of the creek. And that shot in particular, I thought, didn't work as well. There's a shot kind of coming from above and in the, the theater. Foot, I, the I foot shot? Where yeah, where he puts the foot yeah, on top. I totally of agree the, with you. Um, I totally well, agree. But, but what, what the one thing you know, there was the the um, the animation. But the other thing I thought that was difficult there was I actually felt like the um, displacement and the bump maps on the skin textures were really they were almost too crunchy. Like they were so dialed up that like that it was almost too much displacement. And then the shot of the dinosaur then walking away. For the in the way it was composited into the shot, where he sort of 
doesn't kill the dining or excuse me, the dying dinosaur. I'm not sure what the motivation was there. <laughs> he's not he dining he, on the dying. He's not dying. No, he, they didn't dine on one another. But um, <laughs> excuse me. But he uh, he's he turns and he's sort of walking away and yep. he's backlit. Yep. But there's almost too much fill light on him, and it doesn't really match with some of the surrounding uh, rocks that are in the stream and whatnot. And I mean, it's a minor thing, but it it made it. Uh, you you really those shots are so sort of, you know, kind of hero shots that are framed somewhat differently than the rest of the film, right? Because they're, Love they feel like they're sort of, sh- yeah. yeah, right? And so they have a different sort of stylistic look. And because of the way in which the dinosaurs fill the frame, you know, they really occupy the center space of the frame, you really are looking directly at them. And there's no escaping in those shots. And I think if those comps, you know, in terms of black levels and, you know, the, the kind of... Um, integration of really getting them to sit into that scene. If it's not perfect, you notice it. And and I felt like in a couple of those shots, they stood out in a way that it took me out of the film a little bit. And, and you know, I think there was, would be really difficult shots to composite correctly, especially if you didn't get like a good, you know, HDR or something off, you know, what they got offset. I don't really know. Well, they, they you know, said that they that got HDRs something they, offset. Um, by the way, if oh, you want to look at that frame that you're referring to, if you go to FX Guide to a story that uh, Ian wrote for us in, I'm going to say July, uh, with Dan Glass, there's actually a frame of exactly the shot you're talking about, and you can actually click on mm-hmm. it and get a high-res uh, one to look at. And I totally agree with you. That that didn't work for me. And I kept on thinking, oh, oh, this is like uh, Walks with Dinosaurs on a TV budget versus right, when right. I saw the beach stuff where I was like, oh, my God, this is some of the best feature film dinosaur stuff I've ever seen. Um, I mean, I, I liked a lot of the earlier stuff. Of course, I have less point of reference for planets colliding than I do uh, what stuff looks like in a, in a riverbed. Not that I've seen many dinosaurs in riverbeds. But Ty, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're pointing out, um, you, you're, both of you are, are, are being accurate. I, 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 I did have some, uh, I was jarred a little bit by the sequence in the stream. I, I thought maybe at first part of it was just because it was such a different naturalistic environment. You know, I mean, it was a very different place. It, you know, it was kind of had ferns and lots of shadows, and it didn't seem like a prehistoric creek. It just seemed like where you'd see trout or something, you know. And so I thought that maybe that was affecting uh, my perceptions a bit and maybe making it even seem uh, uh, less, um, you know, like it, it was already challenging realism to me that that would be a place where I would stumble across a dinosaur. And then there wasn't a lot of kind of support things going on like matt said it was pretty much front and center there's the dinosaur he's walking along and there's another one that's sick or whatever so yeah i i thought that those were not up to par with the beach dinosaur or with the space stuff that said you know um it was an interesting moment to put in because of all the things in the movie and i'll be honest and say that 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 i still scratch my head about what was trying to the director was thinking about with regards to that it makes me interested in thinking about it because it's very very strange, very odd moment out of the whole movie. And clearly, if he, he's such a perfectionist, uh, uh, Malik is, as I understand it, he certainly would have uh, jettisoned it if it didn't pass mustard. It must have been a very relevant you know, beat for him. So I'm very curious. I'll consider to ponder that, uh, you know, continue to ponder that since I've seen it. Let's switch gear to Melancholia, which is the other film um, Mm. that we want to discuss. Now, it's very relevant to put these two films together because they're both what you might call uh, independent films in the sense they have certainly an independent spirit to them and and a sensibility. And also they've got strong visual effects. They also deal with uh, 
very large planetary issues at various points in the film, and and I neither of them are what you'd call uh, action or comedy flicks. So uh, let's quickly, because I want to get onto the visual effects of Melancholia. What did you think, Ty, of actually the film itself? I think. Well, I it falls you. into it falls into a similar category. I'm I'm glad that uh, uh, there's you know directors whose vision takes them in a certain direction where they'll create something that's very different than than you know what I guess. Uh, mainstream or or I guess I would say um, um, you know category category cinema is sort of uh, geared towards uh, I thought it took some interesting risks uh, and um, you know I thought that it was clearly again a personal vision some personal story that the director was compelled to uh, to present did it with a lot of style it was very well crafted I saw some of the visuals I thought were really really stunning although um, in a much more kind of theatrical way uh, in a in a in a way that that was not naturalistic to me it was very um stylized almost like the wizard of oz is or something like that i mean it was very um playful and and constructed in a way that that you knew it wasn't uh, it wasn't supposed to be an imitation of reality. It was really an alternate reality that was being presented. Uh, and um, I thought that the film was well photographed and well acted. Uh, I felt, though, for me personally, um, that um, it, it, it was almost too clever by half in many regards. It, uh, it didn't ring completely true to me. I thought it was a bit indulgent and um, uh, a kind of a bit muddled. Uh, I know that's going to sound very strange coming off all of my uh, kudos for the Tree of Life, but I, I didn't get a sense of the authentic uh, questioning uh, of reality. I felt more like I was being led and in, led in a manner to make certain um, assessments of the situation. It felt more narrative in that way, and, and it was more, um, I felt more manipulated by it and not provoked to um, ponder it as much. So it was a less successful picture for me, to be sure. Wow. I liked it a lot more. <laughs> okay. Matt, what did you think? Well, I would say, you know, I really enjoyed Melancholia. I think, um, you know, in a, but in a kind of a different way. I do think that the two films share a lot of DNA in kind of an interesting way. Um, and maybe in some ways they're quite disparate too but I, I really enjoyed this film I, I'm not I don't like all of Lars von Trier's movies but um, I think this one was certainly one of his more commercial um, efforts in terms of the the look and the, um, the the structure of the narrative overall but I really quite like the um, kind of again <laughs> not to harp on this word too much but kind of the metaphysical qualities within the narrative itself um, I thought the visuals were really strong it, it had a Felt very much like a um, a real art film in a lot of ways, um, which I kind of like. Um, but I also uh, thought the you know the use of the phantom camera in some of the sequences at the beginning, um, I really like uh, the way that was used and the way that they actually augmented that um, digitally too by adding um, some elements into some of those shots and creating um, really kind of a pretty amazing looking what looked just like you know slow motion still photographs i mean just these incredible compositions that were so um well lit and well um composed they were really just so pleasant to watch and with the Mahler uh soundtrack uh kind of in the background you know i think it really took kicked it up a whole nother notch for me as a film and i did really enjoy too the the story of kind of the two sisters that kind of mirror in a lot of way the two 
um, satellites that we see kind of, you know, in the sky and, and how they sort of, um, their positions and their states of mind and their emotions um, and their senses of control and of loss and depression and whatnot, they kind of seem to almost change places as the sort of fates uh, shift over the course of the film. And, and I thought that that was, it felt really... Um, you know, really theatrical in a way. Um, and that it was, a, it was kind of an, a nice metaphorical, um, kind of fairy tale type of a story that, um, I wasn't quite expecting. I knew kind of what it was about, but I hadn't read a whole lot about it upon going in to see it. And, um, I had seen that it was available to rent while it was also in the theater, um, off of, you know, iTunes or something. And, and I, I chose not to rent it because upon watching the trailer, I just thought, God, you know, this looks like something you've got to see this on the big screen. You know, I don't know. And I mean, well, I have a pretty good sized TV. I just thought, you know, unless I sit really close, like I want to, I want to be totally enveloped in these, this visual, you know, it looked so um, powerful um, visually. And in fact, there are some I, visual effect shots that, that the characters are so small on screen that I think if you're watching it on a normal TV, you wouldn't even see that they were on the, on, mm, on the mm-hmm. grass um, in the distance. But no, I, I really, I really liked it. I, 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 um, I don't know. I guess it's a little depressing in a way, but I, I kind of like that about it. You know, I, I, I sort of feel like there's <laughs> probably, something probably on, of, on point there. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, very much in, in keeping with the title, I suppose. If you're doing a Venn diagram of these two uh, films, then theatrical would be the the mid ground. Though, ironically, if you uh, sorry, not these two films, Lars's most famous films, um, because I was uh, obviously. Uh, Dogville with Nicole Kidman is uh, one of his best-known films, and that is both simultaneously very unpolished in comparison to this, and also very theatrical um, at the same time. And that mm-hmm. theatricalness that it shares with this film is just based on this um, uh, this sort of staging for the audience, which is very explicit in Dogville and and uh, much more stylistically so in this. I did think that um, I don't know if you guys have actually ever had any depression or known people with depression, but <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I've known people with depression, <laughs> but I thought sure. that it's a difficult subject to capture. And yeah, no, and I think I, you're right. I think that it was, uh, an interesting film. And I think that it was brave, quite frankly, um, in some of the things, because quite frankly, uh, by the time she's shagging people on the golf course, I wasn't really rooting for her in the, uh, audience sense. Uh, you know, to have a main character that seemed to be so, uh, at her own wedding, uh, dismissive of her own husband, it was not as if we were going in thinking, wow, I really like this character and I really want to, you know, make sure that she comes out of this all right. Uh, she seemed to be on a spiral of, of self-destruction that, um, you know, it's not, not making it the most sympathetic character. Um, but of course, unlike my criticism of Tree of Life, it did have much more of a an actual plot in this film so i guess that's why i was on more Mm -hmm. sort of stable ground let's talk about the visual effects because for a start there is another strong montage it's not as as long as the um 22 whatever it is minute thing in tree of life but at the very beginning of the film right out of the gate we're just hit with an incredibly impressive array of uh very very good use of high-speed photography all of which um as i think ty said is is very stylized and and interesting and i thought those shots uh, i don't know who you might have said it, Matt. They looked like stills until you realised that they were moving. Yeah, um, yeah. In a way that they were, I'd almost say that they looked like paintings until you realised that they were moving. They were just mm-hmm. that exquisitely rendered. Uh, and I thought they were really 
good arresting visual effects shots that made me think, but also weren't things the golf course shot. I mean, just I hadn't seen something like that before. Um, I mean, some of the shots like which, the horse going which, down when she's uh, holding the child. She's and, holding the child walking across yeah. the, the green, yeah, mm-hmm. um, and sort of sinking into the grass yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, it was like the kind of thing that I think you know. I, I know I've had fever dreams, right? You know, where you uh, have these crazy dreams where you're trying to run away from something, or and you feel like you're stuck in like the muck, and you're trying to run as fast as you can, but you can only move in slow motion. You know, and it, it's like it really captured that um, kind of feeling. That I think you know a lot of people just you know dream, <laughs> dream logic kind of things that you can kind of relate to that sense of um, feeling stuck, feeling trapped in a scenario, you know. And I think the the way in which those uh, first few sequences were rendered, including um, really the big money shot, which I I think um, from the, what very little I was able to garner um, about the effects of this film thus far, um, the shot of the the Earth being colliding with melancholia and the destruction of those planets, I think was like one of the most complicated shots on the film. Um, and I believe it was done by a company in Germany. I want to say, I think it was like the companies that worked on this film were in, I don't know the names of the companies even, but well, I think Pixel they were Mondo, in Germany. And- Pixel Mondo was one of the companies out of the, I think the Frankfurt office. And then there was okay. another company, I think in, in Sweden, Sweden, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but but that shot was just so amazing, and is one of the first shots you see. You actually the film opens, you know, almost with a shot of the end of the movie. You know, in a sense, like it's elliptical in that respect. I, I know, thought I that mean, shot was very successful. Yeah, sorry, Gunsha. No, I agree. I mean, I, I thought. In fact, I would I would say that some of my um, some of my um, disappointment in the film really stemmed from how awesome I found the first ten minutes to be. I, I love the the sequence when. Um, you know, they were just in the big limo. That was just a really interestingly staged uh, idea to introduce the characters. It was funny and it had some kind of wit and charm. And 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 what was interesting is that from a from a cinematic uh, uh, standpoint that I feel is very strong is that all those stills, those slow motion stills, uh, do make uh, do reappear in a very interesting way, and they make a lot of right. logical sense in the larger film. They're not just they're not just you know, like crazy psychedelia just to stimulate us, to get us interested in the film. Um, they're actually metaphors that play throughout the, the, the larger picture. And I would recommend the movie. I mean, it didn't, uh, it wasn't a film that I wouldn't say is worthy of seeing. It, I thought it was a fine film and I, um, I, would, I would recommend it to, to people. And I thought it was interesting in a lot of the same ways that I like other films. Um, I just feel in the context of tonight's conversation with you know the tree of life and this together that I, I have to be pretty clear about where my position on it is uh, between the two I do think that high speed photography is a dangerous thing because sometimes you almost uh, slow out and sort of therefore stretch out the emotional impact of a shot making it just a technical exercise in viewing something from a different point of view and I didn't get that with this high-speed photography. I mean, the horse going down, it's very evocative. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's a number of shots. The birds falling behind her uh, headshot. Oh, yeah. Another great effect shot. That's the opening shot of the movie. And these are, these are really emotionally punchy uh, shots where you don't feel like, okay, I'm just now kind of curious about this because I've never seen, you know, uh, a really high-speed shot of a balloon busting before kind of thing. No, instead of that, it was... <laughs> Wow, this is this is really um, different. This is this is kind of stretching things. And I should point out also that, uh, and we 
got a story came up on FX Guide about this, but the, that horse going down sequence, um, as I think you guys know, uh, they actually went up and photographed time lapse the real the, the northern lights, northern yeah. lights, the aurora borealis to comp that in. You know, they actually sort of sat in the snow and mm-hmm. and uh, photographed it. And we've been lucky enough to see that kind of footage, though we, we can't publish it for you. So there's a lot of real craft that's gone into these shots. It isn't just a matter of let's get a high-speed camera and shoot some of some cool stuff. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing about the shots, too, like, I mean, I think that all those opening shots are really successful. And I was actually amazed to see, and it would be great when, um, you know, Ian uh, is able to publish the story just to be able to talk a little bit more in detail about some of those shots. But um, I think... Uh, seeing how some of those were constructed, I had no idea upon seeing uh, the film, you know, aside from the sky replacement stuff with the Aurora, but I didn't realize that some of the elements that were added in the shot of um, the main character, the uh, Kirsten Dunst's character in her wedding gown, sort of trudging across uh, the screen, that all of the um, the sort of tendril uh, bits that are kind of hanging from the trees where she's sort of tied with all these... Um, uh, ropes and whatnot um, that she talks about as being part of the stream she had later in the film that all of that a lot of that stuff was added digitally and composited together and i didn 't get a sense of that when I was watching the shots I mean they were really seamlessly uh, integrated together and same with the shot of the horse falling down and what 's great is they're beautiful shots like you said mike they 're not um, you know, super slow motion just, you know, for the shot of the water balloon exploding. They're really, they're emblematic both of narrative elements that are to come in the film as well as, um, you know, symbolic and metaphorical elements of kind of the states of mind um, and the transitional states of mind that these two sisters in particular kind of go through as they kind of cross paths with one another, kind of like these two planets, you know, that get into this sort of dance of death with one another. It's kind of a similar thing that's happening with these two um, sisters in a way. Um, And I thought that that was really uh, kind of a neat, because it's driven by the story, I think it makes them so much more interesting. And that idea of not being able to move, uh, which I think Kirsten does does a very good job at acting in the bath scene, um, where she just literally sort of just wants to sleep. But that depression to the point of completely debilitating um that idea of slowing down and not being able to engage and not being up and not being you know up and with it you know it's it's beautifully captured uh in the photography and it Mm -hmm. so relates to the emotional state of the characters but also i liked the idea that uh that the director had this idea that in a crisis somebody with depression can actually be much more rational and sort of in control and logical and less hysterical even though they may be the one that is kind of, you might say, emotionally damaged. Um, and, of course, that's exhibited in the end sequence, which which I really do want to talk about because, I mean, on paper, you, see, you know, the end of the world, uh, they're sitting on a <laughs> on a piece of grass and, and the planet explodes. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could go with that, Ty. I, I thought this was a pretty effective um, representation and quite moving. Did you like that in sequence of the uh, their destruction? Yeah, I thought it was effective. I thought that the uh like the the build up to the to the you know the catastrophe was interestingly handled with the the child having built this little apparatus and and that becomes this kind of you know visual 
tool, like it's completely cinematic. I mean, you didn't have to have a scientist explaining something or have uh, you know some description in a in a magazine or the, where the people stand around and talk about it. it. It was all done with the visual tools and and in a very cinematic way. So by the time they you know get to the, it, it was almost like a stripping down effect where you got you know less and less information all the while knowing that uh you know that this 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 planet was on its way to the to the earth and so there's a certain result you know like a, a certain kind of um simplicity about the 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 people coming together and just kind of accepting their again their their fate as as best they can relating to one another as humans and so that, that piece i thought was effective for a visual effects point of view, they actually shot pyro elements of flames engulfing a miniature or a model of people under the, well, the, I think they call it the cave, but the teepee um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the, uh, if you see the stills of it. And, um, and those elements obviously were combined with green screen shots of the actual actors. And then, of course, uh, a lot of matte painting work to build up the planets and then um, additional work to get that kind of full thrusting. Um, I guess it's some kind of... Uh, Plastic cloud that's kind of coming forward, this kind of uh, wall yeah. of uh, destruction from the uh, impact, which you know one imagines um, you could do that almost as a as a flash. I think there's just enough in here that you don't feel cheated by the end of the world. A little bit of camera shake never hurts, but um, yeah. not so much that you just got destruction porn. You know, uh, and well, I think don't I think, you don't I you think, think that? Oh, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, too, you know, when you think about the effects in particular in this movie, aside from the the super slow motion shots, I think the other thing that's really interesting, um, you know, there is the tendency for kind of the sort of the dogma, you know, movement, the kind of um, cinema verite kind of handheld style to be a part of the evolving narrative in any (laughs) Lars von Trier movie. But um, for some of the more kind of stylistic elements that seem to be the, the shots, not always, but sometimes there were shots of things like, you know, out a window where the camera was uh, handheld and the, you could see melancholia as sort of a second moon in the sky. And it was, you know, obviously you know, well-tracked, you know, not a complicated shot per se, but um, not necessarily anyway. And then, but then you would have these shots um, like the end shot, like shots from sort of the... Um, the the balcony uh, of this kind of grand you know castle looking out over the grounds um, where they had a you know they have this big uh, sundial and whatnot and there's all these shots that are um, I believe they're essentially including the end shot they're essentially lock offs right I mean the camera mm. looks like it's kind of on sticks you know and it's not going anywhere and um, it's all about um, you know, boarding out that sequence and then, you know, compositionally laying out the key elements in a kind of operatic way, really, where, mm. you know, the planet Melancholia at the end is so huge in frame. It fills frame like, you know, it's like a harvest moon on steroids, right? Like, I mean, it really feels like it's just filling the frame. And then some of the shots of the grounds where they have the kind of um, topiary uh, trees in the garden and and you see the sundial in the foreground and then the sort of the I believe some kind of sea right off in the distance and and some of those were um, composite shots where they were compositing elements maybe into the foreground or maybe some trees into the background or even a, a particularly stage shot where they had the two sisters and the young son in the middle and they were all photographed separately and then composited together in these really kind of very symmetrical kind of um, lock-off shots that were highly stylized, but they were effect shots, and they're the kind of effect shots that are so different than the kind of things that you normally see because of the stylization that they had, where they felt very formal and very kind of um, 
much more like a painting compositionally than like a, a Renaissance painting or something rather than um, looking like a traditional uh, sort of visual effect shot, something that you wouldn't really expect to see. And, and the, the way that they came together, I thought, was uh, really beautiful and served the story uh, in a really strong way. I mean, interestingly, they, they do serve the story. They are completely stylistically different from the rest of the cinematography in the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and yet it didn't grate with me. It felt like uh, these moments of uh, either imagination or dread or uh, actualization or visualization of the depression. They just seemed appropriate. Well, who doesn't love once in a while getting a lock off, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think also, the, I think that the, the, the opening sequence the, that we keep referring to, the slow, ultra slow motion, these very lush, stylized artistic shots, really do, whenever they, whenever they choose to, whenever the director chooses to, he rings like this visual bell and you go back to that material in your mind. I mean, there's a, there's mm-hmm. a certain cadence that, that is very much there. It's interesting because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think, I would love to have a beer with you guys and talk about this further, but there is also, um, uh, uh, getting away from the effects for one, one second, is that the structure with the, um, the visual cues uh, from beginning to end, this reoccurring kind of moment of stylized calm, which was really there, you know, after the wedding or, you know, with the scenes outside where the two moons are, which I thought was very extraordinary with the way that they played one warm and one cool. Um, mm-hmm. There is a lot of material in the movie that that is lost because it, in my mind, it just falls out of the narrative track. So it almost disappears from your mind. And, and that's, I guess, where I felt that... Uh, it was a little sleight of hand, a little bit clever, and I was confused by it in a in a certain regard. For example, um, you know, um, a sequence where she whips the horse. You know, it was so visceral and so out of you know, it was very different for the character and her mm. depression. And then it, it, you, I was quite agitated by it. And then it sort of ends, and it it doesn't really reoccur thematically nor does it to get discussed nor is it really in my mind saying anything on a deeper level Although that i need that, to understand well i don't know though i think that scene though interestingly enough replays later and there's this whole thing about crossing the but, bridge right and with the, the horse little refuses. golf cart is that what it was when they when they yeah. drive oh yeah and yeah, it dies and it won't cross little, the bridge yeah. either mm. no i know but i mean I, that's what I, mean. <laughs> but I i think that this is why it would be great to have a longer conversation because in my mind <laughs> The narrative brings you forward in a certain cadence, and then you see the structure that's very much there. And like the beans I was mentioning, you know, like I totally forgot about the beans being counted at this wedding. There's a little, like a little parlor game that's played when these people arrive at the wedding and they're supposed to guess how many beans are in. Two million beans or something. Yeah, exactly. But then at the end, it comes back, it comes back into the picture again as relevant information. And that's very clever and interesting. So I was always thinking, well, he really has got this dialed in. So when I saw things that were not quite structured with as much finesse they just seem uh, like to be leave me quandering in a in a way that i, I guess could, i didn't like want maybe. kirsten dunson's character to be all sympathetic or i mean i liked that she seemed when the hitting the horse made me hate her obviously but that was good because i didn't want just a black and white picture of her you know she was in some respects terrific in some respects a victim in some respects evil like she just you know she was doing horrible things with a nice smile sometimes uh you know and i mean putting up a facade obviously putting up a a front at other times 
I heard a great interview with her. Uh, she won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival for this performance in this movie, which I think is interesting as well. But, um, but uh, she uh, was talking on a, I think it was on like Fresh Air or something like that on NPR, and she was being interviewed, and and the uh, interviewer had asked her a question about her character and how she thought it was so interesting that her character was seemed like she was almost reveling in the fact that everything was going to be ending and you know she was talking sort of fatalistically about the nature of life in the universe and you know that we're alone in the universe and whatnot but i but she the actress had an interesting take on it that i thought was kind of neat and it really was an interesting way of thinking about that character's transition and she said that she always kind of felt like the character that she was playing never felt like she really fit in in this world and that as melancholia came closer she almost saw it as her true mother you know and that she was going home or something and i thought that was kind of interesting if you think about her portrayal in that respect and why she has so little fear you know well there are even overlays um, in some people's critique of the film that she is an of this world that she herself is somehow alien mm. um yeah, the other effect actually we should talk about was the lightning, right? There's this when, as melancholia draws near, there's like all kinds of um, static electrical plasma, kind of discharge, yep. and so there's like this sort of plasma effect again in slow motion um, with uh, her in the foreground. It's, I think it's actually the shot that appears on some of the theatrical posters for the film, no, where she's I, I, and it literally is. I was going to say that I actually, you know, if you're going to take risks as a director, um, you know, and I think I would point to like David Lynch, you know, and his logic or lack thereof when he structures his pictures, you know, he might as well go with, uh, you know, guns blazing because the as the movie is sort of establishing that there's this planet approaching and there's science behind it, you know, the the, the ideas that there would be some kind of electrical plasma released. I don't know where that would come from, but that was an interesting visual that kind of made it more kind of supernatural and um, kind of, um, you know, just strangely esoteric. And like when the oxygen is suddenly, you know, depleted because the planet goes so close. I mean, I don't know anything about that, but it all, it was almost like it was just a meditation on calamity that he could freely move about and say that, you know, why is the ground softening? Why, you know, everything was sort of, you know, just uh, given a certain amount of um, uh, reality and the audience or the uh, characters just believed in it. And uh, we in About the Business didn't really try to explain anything at all uh, scientifically. I mean, the whole movie, like I said, really hinged on this toy that the kid built and a, and a, and a copy from, a, from the Internet, you know, a little diagram. But um, don't you think it was kind of not – because I found it just interesting – much more interesting than just watching California go into the ocean again. And, you know, I mean, I yeah. just really found it fascinating. And also I started thinking about those things, well, the ground getting wet, you know, and like you're thinking, well, tides, because obviously tides are affected by the moon and the gravitational pull. And you just start, I mean, there's lots of stuff there that you can ponder about and think off about. It doesn't need to be totally accurate because not presented but i love that we didn't have 20 minutes of exposition every turn you know with somebody oh, great i i totally agree yeah just explaining and explaining and explaining it's like you know what we get it you know uh, you know one thing um if you guys don't mind taking a turn in the conversation a bit here and i know we're starting to get a little long if um but um one of the things I think that is really interesting about kind of both of these movies and also too, Mike, you know, you guys recently did a show, I think a couple of shows back on anonymous, um, uh, you know, you look at uh, a movie like, uh, melancholia and you look at tree of life. I don't know. 
I probably should know this, but uh, I don't know what the budgets were on these two films. But certainly the effects budgets for both, I wouldn't imagine were, you know, of the ilk of, uh, you know, some of the bigger blockbuster tentpole movies that we oftentimes will talk about on the show, you know, rightfully so. I mean, I think, but these are, you know, smaller kind of independent films. And you go back and I was looking at some of the other films that I think kind of fall into this category more recently. There was, of course, um, that great uh, Duncan Jones movie, Moon, as well as probably mm-hmm. his second film, uh, the uh, what was the one with the train? Um, uh, that's oh, I know. Uh, now, but, yeah, yeah, uh, the time one. Um, the, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, really. But uh, then, you know, Anonymous, again, another sort of smaller budget, but with an, uh, probably a larger effects budget than well, these anon- two, maybe more. Anonymous and Tree and Life are, like, are both sort of 30 million, I think. Um, Melancholia is yeah. like way down at like 7 or 8 million. But then, like, but then Moon, I think, had a budget, a total budget, they say, anyway, uh, of $5 million, right? Yeah, though I think uh, the just, effects house may have got some back end on that to offset. But yeah, whatever. To offset yep. what they did. But then, you know, like, even like District 9, probably on the higher end, right, mm-hmm. uh, as a smaller budget film. Something like um, the film that you guys profiled earlier, and we, I think we did a show on, too, that, I mean, I just totally loved, was the, um, the movie Monsters. Uh, yep. Uh, and then there's a film out right now as well, uh, another kind of sci-fi movie that looks really similar in a weird way to uh, these two movies, too, called Another Earth. And I think it's really exciting to see kind of these smaller, you know, some bigger, obviously, but some of these smaller films embracing visual effects in in a way, really incorporating them into the story um, and using uh, tools with sort of the, the way in which... Uh, you know, you look at uh, DSLRs in, you know, shooting or even like, you know, the red cameras or, you know, the Alexa or whatever, like, or the new Canon, what is it, the C300 or whatever, you know, the, the barrier to entry for, you know, high resolution image capture, uh, the costs have been dropping. And so there's kind of this democratization of access to tool sets. And I think you're seeing in a lot of these lower budget films, a similar kind of phenomena taking place where, you know, a film can incorporate um, some really high-end production value uh, using digital technology and some traditional technologies. Like I know Moon, they did a lot of stuff with uh, miniatures as well. And then the the stuff in Anonymous, I mean, seeing some of the breakdowns uh, in the... Um, from that show, I mean, God, some of that stuff is just amazing. Like what mm. they were able to achieve with so such a sort of smaller budget than what you would expect in terms of the yield on screen of what they're getting. And I think the smart use of visual effects with a smaller budget to really beef up the production value and to um, enhance the story, I think it's something that we haven't seen uh, happen as frequently, and we're seeing it happen more and more. And I think it's really exciting. I think there's an opportunity here for all kinds of really, you know, smaller budget films to get made and to incorporate a lot of the kind of work that I think we all really love, you know, this kind of um, visual effects uh, techniques and and to really create, um, you know, the kinds of really powerful, maybe even at times more personal stories that um, you don't often see incorporating effects. And to be able to use visual effects in that way, uh, I think is really cool. And I, I don't know that it's something that we would have seen you know, 20 years ago, I think as the price for software and hardware that can do this stuff keeps coming down, you know, smaller uh, groups of people and smaller shops can, you know, uh, sort of pop up and and generate but work like this and generate you, really high quality work. Wouldn't, I was going to say, wouldn't we all agree that there was nothing in these films that looked hokey? 
Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Just didn't look yeah. amateurish, and yet, the, like at eight million bucks or something for a budget. I mean, it has no right to look this good. Uh, but I yeah. just didn't feel like anything was looking kind of hokey and you know, whatever. And that's what used to be the case. You went to low budget, you'd have to put up with some pretty dodgy effects. But you know, whatever, we'll mm-hmm. go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah. you're right, but I also think it's clever that neither film tried to do. Well, I guess maybe the so true, life, but neither film tried to do wall to wall visual effects. There was like a sensible allocation of let's do these powerful visual effects shots and get real punch from them rather yeah, they than used it like in a really intelligent way yeah, yeah, yeah. that only it, yeah, didn't rely exclusively on the visual effects right it, the visual effects were used to augment you know what was already hopefully you know a well thought out and well planned out story i mean i think of the movies that i mentioned probably you know the exceptions might be you know something like uh, moon or anonymous you know in the sense that like i think the effects really served uh, the film in a pretty large way. They were a huge feature of both films. They were critical, I think, in both. But Yeah, I think what you're – another way to say it, if, I'm, if, you know, if I can, Matt, sure, is sure. That, that I mm. think the, the, what you're seeing is that the, these effects appear in service of the vision of the director. Uh, whereas oftentimes, especially I remember in the early 90s when we were cracking the code on some of the early digital stuff, it almost became like a way to – actually just um, you know soup up your whole production you know you were just you brought in more effects or more complicated effects or more you know stunners as it was we used to talk about and just to kind of double down on entertainment value in many like cases like trailer shots yeah, exactly. Trailer shots or just the one shot that people will talk about that you've never seen before. Whereas I think this – and I, I would almost go back to Mike's earlier, uh, earlier analog to uh, music. You know, I remember very well in the 80s when, when home uh, recording equipment got less expensive and, and there were a lot of digital tools and, and samplers were coming out and little, you know, little Korg drum machines. And suddenly you had all these – that became the kind of the flavor of the month was to have all these things operating in your songs. And, you know, that, that can be interesting for a while, but eventually you need to get to a place where the, the musicians and the performers are actually choosing the tools that they most want for the effect they want to give the audience. And I think that's clearly, um, you know, what these pictures have done is that these were carefully executed shots that were meant to support the larger vision of the director, as opposed to being, you know, a branch that it's actually interwoven into the larger um, construction, and and I yeah, I agree with Matt. It's exciting. It's it will be exciting I to think, yeah, I think continue what to we're watch. Seeing that. is yeah, we're seeing something that I think is really it's like burgeoning out of its infinite infancy and into like its sort of rebellious teenage years or something. You know, like we, I think we're um, we're in this really interesting time, and I, I get excited. Um, you know, I was saying earlier, the semester for me just wrapped up today, um, so I had a lot of students you know, finishing their final projects and stuff. And that was kind of exciting. They were all frantically running around trying to get stuff done and, you know, re-rendering bad frames and stuff like that. And it was pretty cool. And, and, um, I talked to the students a lot about this and I say, you know, I look at a film like, um, you know, the work that was done in tree of life or something like moon or, or even, um, monsters is more, even more inspirational in some ways. And that really, it was pretty much one guy, right? Like a one man band <laughs> doing the whole thing. And, and I look at something like that and I think, you know, how many shots were there in the first Jurassic Park, right? I mean, 60, 
yeah, maybe, yeah, right? I mean, like, it wasn't. Like, a, it I wasn't think it was, it was like 47, if I remember. It's just a few <laughs> yeah. minutes I mean, it, in uh, Terminator 2, right? Even Terminator yeah. 2, which was right. like a and, big effect film. And if film. you go back, and, and we've, I know we've gone back and we've talked about those films on retro shows and stuff, but you go back and look at those movies, and man, they still hold up great. They're a hell of a lot of fun to watch, and the effects are still really enjoyable. And you remember... If you know if you're old enough to remember seeing those movies in the theater for the first time, man, they were knock your socks off amazing. And but the shot count was really low. And I bet you a small team of you know half a dozen really skilled senior artists could redo all the effects in a film like Jurassic Park today on off-the-shelf software using you know pretty much stock hardware, and they could replicate those shots and maybe even make some of them look better. You know, and I think. The fact that that's possible now, what that portends for the future of visual effects, you know, will it will it continue on that track? Will it be possible, given the advancements in, you know, hardware and software and, you know, knowledge and techniques and more sort of artist-friendly tool sets and whatnot, will it be possible in another how, – how many years has it been since Jurassic? What, like 20 – Almost twenty years. Ninety-three. Right? In another twenty years. In another twenty years, will you be able to make a, a sequence like uh, you know the the destruction sequence in Chicago in Terminator Three with a small team of people? Like maybe. I mean, I just think it's a really exciting time to be in this business and to see a lot of these lower budget films coming out really gets me excited, and I and I I think it gets a lot of my young students excited, and I think it's just a really it's so great to see this kind of work coming out. I think it's just really inspiring. It is nice also that we're talking about different styles of visual effects shots, um, you know, because there is a really great use of high speed here, but there's also, that, as we said, that really great use of shooting elements digitally, but that they're like real life elements and stuff. Um, and I do think that I want to make sure that um, we applaud the fact that this isn't all just... Because computers have got faster. This is also... Oh, sure. Oh, know, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I, I do really genuinely think there's a lot of craft and a lot of... Uh, like, I mean, you've got somebody doing the visual effects in Tree of Life who's just got a lifetime of, you know, invaluable experience that can lead to the right choices and the right approaches and stuff that, um, that are just fundamentally awesome. And I'm, I agree with you about almost everything you said, as long as we don't imply that anyone could do it, because I do. No, I think you're absolutely right. But I do think, I think you're absolutely right. But I do think too, that, you know, whether it's, you know, sites like effects guide and shows like this, or, you know, things like the visual effects society or other um, professional organizations or other, you know, websites out there that are really pumped up and excited about, or magazines like Cinefix, you know, I mean, those things grow in popularity and people come to understand more and more about, you know, the cinematic language and about visual effects and what's possible and get curious about it. And, you know, young kids get excited about it and not just the digital, but also the traditional. I mean, I think it it speaks volumes about how popular, um, I know you've mentioned some of the retro shows are people are interested in a lot of the older techniques. And, you know, I heard your uh, show on Hugo today too, which is really a celebration of, Mm. Um, you know, the sort of history of uh, more traditional visual effects techniques. Yeah, I, I mean, think, I, you know, I, that's something that I don't think, I don't mean to in any way diminish the significance of those by saying, I think, you know, all these other possibilities come along. I think, you know, it's, they're all sort of part of the same fabric, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, and similarly, I don't mean to imply, you know, you can only do it if you're, um, you know, working at a big facility or that you're some sort of senior person. The only thing is, of course, as we all are acutely aware, I mean, who hasn't done 
just the killer shot that you're incredibly proud of. You've gone to show it to somebody right. who says, wow, God, that flame's a good box, isn't it? God, it does really good work, doesn't well, it? Well, of course. And you kind of go, and, and so I guess what I'm saying is, yes, I totally agree with you that it's more accessible than it's ever been before. And I applaud that. And I applaud seeing it in the hands of filmmakers that otherwise haven't had a chance to play in the sandbox. But by the same token, I'm acutely aware that, you know, Doug Trumbull and I both given the same tools. You're going to want to watch Doug's work, not mine. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, sure, I, no doubt. I mean, the computer in the end, what, no matter how expensive or how cheap it is, is software and whatever else, it's just a tool. Yeah. And the tool is useless without, you know, a skill set, an eye, a sense of artistry. You know, like, of course, like I would never say otherwise. But, yeah. but um. And, yeah, and I do I mean, think I, think, I do think these sorts of discussions, the sort of discussions that uh, that we're having here today, are exactly the kind of discussions that you need to have. Like you need to think about um, these effects, both how they sit in the story, how they work, how they work to an audience. I mean, it isn't just about the cool shot, as we've said many times, but it also isn't just about uh, you know can you pull something off. It, you need to know well is that something that's going to give the audience something in a certain direction and, and how is that going to play out? And I've got to tell you, the best visual effects artist I've worked with, I'm thinking of one guy in particular who, uh, well, I'll name him, Peter Webb, who just taught me more than I care to remember. I remember him just being in a meeting with him for one of the first times with the director and, and I was all like to talk about the tech and how we're going to pull this off and this thing, a bit of thing here, we've got this great... And he just was like completely empathetic with the director in the beats of the story and I don't think we even discussed the tech and yet I'm sure the director would have come out of that meeting going, man, that guy is so bright, he's so clever, he's so switched on, he's so like whatever because Peter just was a filmmaker first or he's a filmmaker first and a, and a visual effects I said, I remember just being in awe of how he just ran that meeting all about, you know, just the craft of the film and oh, by the way, we're going to use these things that are sitting over there in the corner, which I was all sort of excited to point to and, and, and demo. And uh, so, yeah, so anyway, probably enough said. Hey, look, we got running out of time dramatically. Um, I was looking forward to this show for lots of reasons, and you guys certainly haven't disappointed. Uh, Mr. Wallen, where can people follow you if they want to catch up with where you are? You can always find me um, at mattwallen.com uh, or on Twitter at mattwallen. And Matt's actually been tweeting while we've been talking. Um, <laughs> and, Just uh, once. <laughs> and Mr. Rubin, what, what about you, sir? Um, I can uh, be reached through my website, alieninsect.com. There's a little button there to let you fire off an email, or I'm on Facebook. So I do want to thank you guys because it has been a really informative discussion. And, and it is, uh, you know, obviously difficult uh, material for some people some people love it to death other people uh, less so but you know we uh, I applaud the fact that the show uh, and, and actually I should tell you guys listening that this show really was uh, at really the request of these guys who were like hey Mike we should do something on this stuff and I was like okay so send your hate mail to no, no, us no, no. <laughs> I think it was a good a really good move uh, I must admit I'm looking forward to doing MI4 because I saw it last night in IMAX and, uh, Ooh, and you might know yes. that's kind of my kind of film and, uh, and besides, you know, uh, Tom posted on his blog that he really liked FX Guide. So I'm, I'm, I'm Team Tom. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I want to thank you guys for listening so much. We really do appreciate it. And, uh, and you know, applaud the artistry of the people that worked on these films. I'm sure uh, involved a large labor of love. I'm sure they weren't doing it yeah, for, the, yeah. for the money. Um, thanks so much for listening. Thanks also to our team that put stuff together behind the scenes um, and, uh, and edit and produce and stuff, everything for the show. Until next time, thanks so much for being with us, guys. Bye.
you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.